Welcome to the Cinematchups podcast. We are your hosts, Kim Kohler and Sean Rodenberg, and we are here to close out the three verse 14 seeds for our movies from books bracket challenge. Today we have for you Wuthering Heights, which is our third seed versus the Golden Compass, which is our 14th seed. So we will talk a little bit about these movies, go into our strengths and weaknesses for these movies and battle it out until we have one come through at the end. So starting with Wuthering Heights, that comes in at a 96% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on the 1847 novel by Emily Bronte. We watched the 1939 version. Um, I think there was a more recent version that came out maybe like 10, 20 years ago. I'm not sure. But we watched the 1939 version because that's what was recommended to us. That was the original version adapted into film. So that's the one we watched. The 1939 movie actually only includes 16 of the 34 chapters of the book. So it stops with Kathy's death. If you're familiar with the book, we're throwing out spoilers right away. Um, it was nominated for eight Oscars, so huge Oscar year that year. was nominated for Best Cinematography, Black and White, which it won for. And then was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor for Laurence Olivier, Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Geraldine Fitzgerald, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Art Direction, and Best Score. The year it was nominated was hailed as one of the best Oscar years of all time. So just for reference, some of the movies that were nominated in the Best Picture category, but also in other categories, was Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz, Of Mice and Men, Stagecoach, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. So really classic, huge movies in that year. A lot of book adaptations, too. We see uh, most of those are book adaptations. So huge Oscar year that year. So you brought up that there was an Oscar for cinematography of black and white and color. Mm-hmm. The Wizard of Oz, you know, is one of my favorite movies. Where does that fall? Which one does that actually get nominated for? Because it has both. I actually think that it was nominated for the cinematography for color, but I can look if you give me a second. So I'm pulling it up. And interestingly enough, it was nominated for best cinematography color but it did not win. So it made it into the color category, but gone with the wind one for the color category. It's really interesting. Yeah. Because there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 movies that were nominated for best cinematography, black and white. And then six that were nominated for best cinematography color, which is interesting because it shows that transition into more of these color movies being made, but still predominantly black and white films. So this film was in black and white, really interesting, big year it came out. And then by comparison, we have The Golden Compass, which comes in at a 42% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, based on the 1995 book Northern Lights by Philip Pullman, coming from the His Dark Materials trilogy. So we watched the 2007 film, The Golden Compass, Uh, Not to be confused with, there's also a 2019 TV series called His Dark Materials that is out, I think, now. Um, So researching this film, incredibly interesting in terms of the controversy surrounding it. I had no idea because I thought this was just a young adult fantasy novel. But the Catholic League actually boycotted this film because in the book, the magisterium, which are these people that look to be similar to priests, 
is a wildly astray version of the Catholic Church. So the Catholic League banned this movie because they were afraid that children were going to want to read the book after they watched this movie because the book takes things a little bit more extreme. So then a lot of these religious groups were banning this book and like the atheist society came out and made a statement on it about how we shouldn't ban things because of religion. Like it was just a big thing in terms of religion, which I had no idea and didn't pick up at all watching this movie. And it's because the screenplay was muted down for the film purposes. But it's Sam Elliott actually, who was in this movie said that the sequels that were never made for the rest of the His Dark Materials trilogy, that censorship and the Catholic Church were to blame for that. So like a huge uproar. And then the 2019 TV series came out and it sounds like they haven't muted it down at all. It doesn't skirt around the topics at all. So hugely interesting production, like very, very, I love researching these movies and seeing like the deeper levels of the production and getting it made and how it was made. Because this just kind of blew my mind. Yeah, I'm just not going to make a comment. You know how I feel about religion and the oh. Catholic Church specifically and their dealings with children. Uh, I, I yeah, can't we're not be gonna... more clear and not clear all at the same time. But, you know. Yeah, we're not going to dive into religion on this podcast at all. But I just thought it was interesting having such big opponents of a film that is really not that great. Um, So, yeah, so that was a big thing. It was nominated for two Oscars, um, nominated for visual effects, which it won, and then nominated for art direction. So we have two movies in this matchup, both with an Oscar nomination, but both with very different approval ratings. We have very different opinions on both of these. So let's dive into that. And we will start by talking about our common themes and not a huge overlap in both of these movies. You have Wuthering Heights, which is a love story about just two people who grew up together. And then you have The Golden Compass, which is a fantasy adventure mess of a movie. Um, So our theme that we thought of was the bond of children. Yeah. Thank God Wuthering Heights started out when they were children and not when they were 18, because then we wouldn't have anything. We would have nothing, zero things to talk about. But I think we can talk about the difference between both of these. And in my opinion, there's one that clearly does it better with this theme. And that is Wuthering Heights, because you have the setup of Heathcliff and Kathy growing up together, falling in love as teenagers, growing apart, marrying separate people, but still having that love for each other as time goes by. And I think that it showed their bond so genuinely as children, whereas you fly over to the Golden Compass and I felt like the bond between the children was just purely there for convenience sake. Yeah, I actually didn't know whether they were friends or they were there was going to be some type of love interest between Lyra and Roger or Billy or anybody. So I didn't really know exactly what they were going to do. And it seems like the only reason that there is that bond is because Roger and Billy become kidnapped and Lyra has to go rescue them. And that's the only reason I think they're there. Absolutely. And for a movie that starts out with the children, it starts out with them all playing together, being together, talking, 
you would think that it would be more centered on the bond of those children, but it's not. It's very much Lyra alone for most of the movie, which I get because she has to go and rescue her friends, quote unquote. But it never feels like the bond of them means anything. Like, why is she even saving these kids? They didn't really have a big bond together. It wasn't anything super special. So it was all very confusing. Yeah, there's almost just not enough time to explain everything that's happening in this movie, which goes into my weaknesses. So I guess I'll hold on to that. No, you can go right into it. I I don't think we have a whole lot to talk about with the theme, just that one of them does it better than the other and that it kind of drives the films. Um, So if you want to go right into weaknesses, let's do it. Okay, this movie is a mess. (laughs) And I don't actually know what's happening at the end. And I don't know where these different groups are coming from. But they all have a big fight at the end. So it's really interesting because this movie is full of characters. It's a star-studded cast. They really put a lot of money into this movie and got a lot of people. You have Sam Elliott, Nicole Kidman, Daniel Craig, Ian McKellen, Freddie Highmore. Like you have a lot of big names and then up and coming names too, but there's just too many of them. I don't know who's important and who's not. I spent the entire movie trying to figure out who the antagonist was in, in the movie. I had no idea who was bad, who was good, who was protecting her, who well, was, was trying to hurt her. It was Nicole Kidman, right? But then it was also an evil ice bear and the good ice bear had to punch his jaw off or something. <laughs> Which was a wild scene, too. There was this fight between these two polar bears and one of them was like her companion and the other one was like the bad king of the polar bears. I don't even know. And I know we're going to talk about this movie and people are going to be like, duh, his name was. It's like I didn't read the book and the movie also didn't provide any clarification for me. So we're going to talk in a lot of generalities and that's just how it is. But these two bears were fighting and all of a sudden one of the polar bears punches the other one and we were watching it and we're like, did he just knock his bottom jaw off in this children's film? It was wild. Also, all the polar bear scenes looked like a Coca-Cola commercial. It was insane because it was all that like dark backlit starry night with the icebergs in the distance and then these white polar bears just chilling. And even Sean said during the movie, I'm just waiting for one of them to pop open a glass bottle of Coke. Yeah, there was one thing that really confused me with the ice bears. And I'm glad we're talking about it because... One of the things about this movie was demons and they were these animals that sat by humans and each person had their own. It was their own companion that walked around with them. When you're a kid, your demon can change. But once you become an adult, it stays that way. And there's something there and it didn't really get explained. And that's okay. And I thought I had down what demons were. But then Lyra goes to the king ice bear. That's what I'm going to call him. So she goes to the king bear and says that she is Eirik, the other bear. She says that she is his demon. And at that point, I was like, I don't know what these demons are. Yeah, I, don't know I didn't who, understand that either. I don't know who gets to be a demon. I don't know how it works. I thought I did. But an hour and a half into the movie, all of a sudden, I don't know anymore. Well, because we should clarify for people who haven't seen this or don't know what the hell we're talking about, which we don't even know what the hell we're talking about. But we should clarify that the demons look like pets. So they come in the form of like 
monkeys or birds or cats. We never see the demons as humans throughout the movie. And Lyra is a human child girl. So her going to this polar bear and saying that I'm the other polar bears demon didn't make any sense to me either because I'm like, wouldn't he know? Because aren't humans not a demon or are they? But maybe they can be. I don't know. I have no idea. This movie was just so set up to guarantee a trilogy and it didn't. So just watching one of these, you just are provided with no answers whatsoever. It's just a convoluted mess. And I tried thinking and taking it out of perspective into a way of let's think about some of these fantasy novel movies that have just a plethora of characters in them, right? You think Star Wars, you think Harry Potter. Those have a ton of characters that come across in the movies. And I tried to take myself out of the knowledge I have about those and put myself either in the first Star Wars movie or in the first Harry Potter movie and think, would I have understood it if I hadn't read the book? And the answer is yes. I think they gave the characters enough of a, maybe you don't know everything about them, but here's what we do know now. And I was content with that kind of feeling as opposed to here where they gave you Nicole Kidman's character, Mrs. Coulter, who brings Lyra on this journey to go up North, with her and at first you think she's really nice and you think she's just taking Lyra on to like mold her and teach her these things and then she becomes kind of evil and tries to hurt her and then Lyra runs away and then you find out that she's actually Lyra's mother and so it sets up things like that where you have a character where they vocalize some intentions, but then say, just kidding and go back on them. And you don't know anywhere where they stand at the end of the movie, or you can't even make up a conceptualization for yourself of where they stand because where they actually stand is maybe not important because there's twists and turns in the books and the movies for the future. So even if I just landed on Nicole Kidman is a bad guy at the end of this movie. I think I would be satisfied, but I left this movie with so many question marks on all of these characters, even Daniel Craig's character, who we find out is her father at the end, who's in this movie for all of five minutes, but is played out to be super important. I'm like, I don't know if he's really great. I think he's good. He's got a tiger. That means he's good. Yeah. And she stopped him from being poisoned and he seems important. But all of these people, I don't know what their intentions are. I don't know if they're good. I don't know if they're bad. The only ones you know that are good is Lyra and Pan, her demon. Those are the only two characters who you can settle on knowing how you feel about everybody else is just a convoluted mess. Yeah, I think what ended up happening was too much stuff ended up in this movie because at the end, I already said there was a big fight. It's a big giant battle. The same level of big giant battle as when I saw Aquaman in theaters and there's a giant fight at the end. And I realized during the giant fight, I don't care about the giant fight. And the same thing happened with this movie is that there was a giant fight at the end. But there were four or five groups that were all in this fight. There were the people who kidnapped children, the ice bears, the rebels who are trying to stop the people that kidnap children. Who are just like pirate people. Yeah. And some witches that show up at the end and are only mentioned a few times before that. But at the end, they come in to fight. So I think the fact that that battle happens and all of these people are there and you don't actually know what's going on 
makes it even worse. And this battle specifically is what the movie is in a nutshell, which is a giant mess of everyone. To bring it to maybe a pop culture reference or a context that other people can grasp, it's as if you watched Avengers Endgame and it was the only Avengers Marvel movie you've ever seen. And when you have that scene of all of these people coming in to help, that's the first time you're seeing them. And you're not exactly sure like who the fuck they are or what they do or where they come from. Oh, an end game. Yeah. Okay. That's what I'm saying. Like if you just watched that movie and only like, and saw that scene, you'd be like, I don't know who the hell these people are. That's what watching the golden compass felt like. You saw them for like two seconds, which you do in end game. I think you see a lot of the characters a little bit, but you don't know what their intentions are or who they are, what, what they actually do or why they're there. What are they even fighting for? I like the comparison. I think when you watch Endgame, if you didn't have any context, you could figure out that there was one good side and one bad side. Oh, for sure. But in this movie, it would be like if that happened, but then they dropped in a third group, but you didn't know where the third group was on which side they were. But then on top of that, they said, here's a fourth group of these witches and you don't know anything about these witches and they've only ever been mentioned a couple times in this movie. But guess where they are here for the fight. And you say, I have no idea who they're fighting, what they're fighting for, where they stand on any of these political issues of people taking children. I assume they're against people taking children, right? That seems to be something morally terrible with this one specific group. But you really don't know. You don't know. You don't know. And you can't settle on an opinion. That's the problem with this movie. And I think it's interesting, again, going back to the production of this movie and reading about it, reading about the screenplay. And you had Chris Weitz, who directed and did the screenplay for this movie. And he was chosen out of a couple other people, I think, that wrote the screenplay and wanted to add more and wanted to allow more story building, almost quit the project a few times and new line cinema basically told him, no, like you can't, it can't be longer. You can't add more to it. This is great. Go for it. So I think that's actually the wrong call. The wrong call is that they added too much. Yeah. But I think meaning more of just an explanation of these, I think, I agree with you. It would have been too much for me if this movie was like three hours long. I would have just cried my eyes out having to watch it for three hours. But if you would have allowed, like you're saying, more story building, world building of these witches and where they come from and what their intentions are and what their main task is in life. What are they doing? Why is why are they there? What is their purpose? I think that would have provided some clarity in some ways. And again, I think it goes back to the assumption that this would be signed on for a trilogy and it just wasn't. So overall, this was just like a mess for a fantasy movie, a children's fantasy movie. Your storytelling should be the best thing about this movie. You should be able to take from a book that tells a story and these books, people really like them. So I'm assuming that they're really great at getting the story across and people are really 
big on these worlds and big on these characters. So for a book series that put those things out so clearly for you to fail in the storytelling method of that is a a pretty big shame because that should be your strongest suit is that you are going to tell a good fantasy story that children can understand too. I can't see a child watching this and understanding it. I'm 30 years old and I sat here scratching my head. Like I just don't think it catered to any population or did a service to anybody watching it. I'll disagree with that. I think one group of people enjoyed this movie and it is people who read the book and enjoyed the book and wanted to see an on-screen adaption of it. And that's it. Maybe. They said, oh, I like Lord Asriel. I wonder how he would look if he was handsome and suave like Daniel Craig. And guess what they got? They got a handsome Lord Asriel. But he was only in it for a little bit and everything was complicated. But the book readers know what's going on. So they can piece it together with more information that they have from the book. So I think that might make it better. But I didn't read the book, so I have no idea. Yeah, I can see that. I guess that's true. But it also could go the opposite way where the book readers are so pissed off at this adaptation that they just get mad and turn off their TVs. If you guys have read the book, let us know (laughs) because we have not. And this movie was just a whole mess to me. But let's go into the strengths of this movie and see if you have any for this movie. I actually do. There's certain parts of fantasy that I really enjoy and they're smaller parts. But I'll give you an example. You brought up Harry Potter. We'll stick with that. There are pieces in this world that exist and they only exist in this world. And I think that's very important. Like in Harry Potter, one of the famous things about Harry Potter is the train platform nine and three quarters. That's very famous. I said it. Everyone that's listening knows exactly what I'm talking about. This movie, the little bit that it did in the world building and the things that exist in this world, I thought were very cool probably goes back to the visual effects of this. But it was some of these just cars on the side of the street, not necessarily cars, but I believe there was a bike that had some type of turnstile in it that was moving around. And I thought it looked cool. And there were just a couple things where I can grasp what's happening. And I think it's very creative what they're doing. And I appreciate that. Otherwise, this movie's still a mess. (laughs) No, I appreciate that. I think that the visual effects and some of the fantasy elements of it are always cool to see. We even talk about a movie that we watched in this bracket that we also particularly didn't like, which was the BFG. And although there were parts of it that were just a mess and terrible and awful and we didn't like it at all and wouldn't want to watch it again, there were those fantasy elements of the dreams and the lights and things of that nature. And it goes into those visual effects. The big potion room. Yeah, things like that that were really cool. So I hear you on that. My strength goes a little bit into that, but I really liked the idea of the demons and I liked the idea of the demons being just companions. And I thought that was really cool. And my favorite part and the biggest strength of this movie for me is the bond between Pan and Lyra. Pan being Lyra's demon, who is voiced by Freddie Highmore, a very young Freddie Highmore. And is just a really good sidekick. He's one of those classic like Disney sidekicks that you miss seeing in in Disney movies these days. He was protective of her. He stood by her side. He was an ally. He was very cute too. Like he transformed into a cat a couple times and that was adorable. Like 
it was just a really nice bond between them. And for a girl who was pretty much on her own trying to do these really big things and save a bunch of people, having him there as a source of comfort and for that bond, I think was really essential for a child. And I really liked watching the interactions that she had with this little CGI demon. I love that you brought that up because on a couple of these podcasts, I've just had random questions that I wanted to ask you about the movie. I have one with this one and it is, what would your demon look like? It'd be a corgi, right? It would probably be a corgi that also turned into our cats. Yeah, but now you're 30 and what the movie has established is once you stop being a child, it no longer changes. So you got to pick something that it ends up being. Well, that's silly because I want it to change because I... I'm an equal opportunity cat and dog lover. Okay. That sounds like not an answer. (laughs) No, it would probably be just like a really cuddly cat. I think, I think it would be like our cat sauce, who is just like a little bit of a chunky gal who you can just give a hug to, but I would want it to move faster than sauce because she just kind of gallops everywhere because she's got a big tubby belly. She's adorable. Yes. But I think that's what mine would look like. I guess this is also just reminding me of Harry Potter and like, what would your Patronus look like? Kind of those like Buzzfeed quizzes you get, like give us three of your favorite spaghetti dishes and we'll tell you what your Patronus will be. Yeah. Aren't they all just deer? I'm not a big Harry Potter fan, but that's the only one I know. Not at all. One's a deer. Someone's got a deer. Yeah. We got a stag. We got deers. We got cats. Okay, so yours would be a a cuddly cat. Yep, I think so. That's fair. Why? What are you going? You're going something like demonic and terrible. You're like, mine's mine's a great white shark. Mine's a megalodon. (laughs) Uh, No, I didn't really think about it. I thought I wanted to ask you and I wanted to get yours, but I didn't have any thoughts on it. I would do something badass, though. Can I choose Pokemon? I guess. I mean, some of these didn't even look real. So I guess you could. I'd choose a Growlithe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the fuck that means, but congratulations. All right, moving on. Uh, let's go into strengths and weaknesses of Wuthering Heights. And we will start with weaknesses, I suppose. Uh, my weakness for this movie is we talked about the bond of children, but also the children in this movie act like they're 45 years old. It's very strange. And maybe you chalk it up to the time. But you have three children in the very beginning and they all talk very adult like it almost feels like their voices are voiced over by some 45 year old in a studio down the street. It's really odd. And even just the way they act feels very adult, even with Heathcliff and Kathy and them like falling in love. They start talking about very mature topics very early on. They're like 11 and talking about like their love story and things of that nature, which fits the story, but also just the way they present it and the way they act towards each other feels like they're 25 and it just feels a little odd. I would agree with that. My weakness is there's a little too much will they, won't they during this movie where Heathcliff moves away not only once, but twice. And the second time in my head, I was just thinking, yeah, I get it. He moves away. He's going to come back. And I'm just unsure what they're actually doing. And I know you said that there's 
more chapters of this of the book that are not in the story. But I'm just wondering how many times did they have to do the oh they they love each other but they can't but circumstances but their their love's forbidden because they're both married but they they're not really because they're still seeing each other fairly romantically. So where are we? And it's never really defined besides the beginning where they are children and feel very close and in love and the end where Kathy is dying and Heathcliff is the one that is there and she dies in his arms and it's very sad and very touching. But through the middle, I'm just unsure where we're falling at certain times of the story. Well, for clarification, the chapters they omitted from the movie were the chapters after Kathy's death. So, oh, and Heathcliff is alive, just derping around. Yeah, there's more. To okay. the, there's more to the story. There's more to the book. And your weakness is actually my strength um, because I remember reading this book in high school and really not loving it. I know people who like stand for this book and will read it every year and just bind it to be so, so great. And I think that is my strength of the movie is that this is one of the most classic love stories ever told. And it goes to that will they, won't they, but it is one of the first times that this is done. Like not the first time in any books or any cinema, of course, but I would argue one of the most well-known love stories, especially because you, everyone reads this book in high school. Everyone has to read it at some point in their life, I think. And the movie portrayed that really, really well. I think that the love story between them was there, which is really interesting because again, reading about the production of this movie, it sounds like the two main actors actually hated each other. Lawrence Olivier was actually engaged to Vivian Lee, who played the main character in Gone with Wind and wanted her to star in this movie with him. And it was told to him no. So then she went on to do Gone with the Wind and got her Oscar win for it. So really, really interesting. But I guess the main characters absolutely hated each other filming this. And uh, she would accuse him of like spitting at her or something like that. So it was real tense and real weird. Yeah, it was all really, really odd. And she was also engaged, missed her fiance. So it was like a big mess production wise. But you could not they hide tell. it on screen. Absolutely. No, you could not tell. And that's why I bring it up because the strength being the will they won't they and this being one of the greatest love stories of all time. I agree with that, by the way. It is an incredible love story. Yeah. My weakness just goes in the middle. The moving parts are, are a little unclear at times. I can see that. I can hear that. And I think it does come to the fact, too, that you get half of a book and the book's not that long or not that big contextually. So you are only getting half of the story, but you are just getting their love story, which I think was really, really, really great. And you're not getting any of the tragedy that comes at the end of the book. You're getting the tragedy that comes in the middle of her dying in his arms. But I just think that it it was classic and it felt very authentic and it felt very nice and pretty. And I liked it. I agree. My one other strength is this bond gets to be built very quickly in the movie. And I believe that's because of how unknowing Heathcliff is of everything as a child and how Kathy is the one telling him what to do. The movie that I thought of when I saw this, and it's very similar where the boy is timid and the girl is a little more outspoken 
and outgoing is up and the beginning of up where what yeah up where he is just some dopey kid and meets this girl and she is all about imagination growing as a person very important and the same thing in this movie where Heathcliff and Kathy are talking and Kathy says there's a castle right there and it's just a rock formation and he tells her that he can't see it and she basically tells him that if he had a little imagination he would figure out how to make a castle right here and it's just what I thought of when the movie happened. Okay. I can see that now, now that you explain it. But at first I was like, how did you get a five minute heart wrenching montage of Carl and Ellie and put Heathcliff and Kathy in well, it? But well, watch I, this. I get it. I got another one. Okay. Ellie, like Kathy, dies and Heathcliff is very sad. That's what happens in Up. That's true. But his journey is not shaped by her death. His after journey after the or after the movie ends, the second half of this book, I guess. Yeah, I guess there's parallels. I didn't read the second half of the book, so I have no idea. You but you also didn't read the first half of the book. I, so. I didn't read any of the book. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's interesting. I like that comparison and it wouldn't have ever been anything I thought of. Yeah, just the characters and how they work together. It works for me. It works in Up, so it works here. And that's another one of my strengths is just that version of two characters together. Okay, let's go into little details and we can stick with Wuthering Heights. And my little detail for this movie is the score. And it's not, I guess, a little detail, but I couldn't think of anything super little that I liked in this movie because everything does feel very big or baseline like nothing there's not a lot of intricacies in this movie I would say but my whole thing was that the score played throughout the entire movie which you don't see often at all and it all very much felt dreamlike very light very loving it I, I don't know the score just felt so good in terms of what was going on in the movie and even watching this I was like, this score reminds me of The Wizard of Oz. And it's interesting because The Wizard of Oz actually was nominated against this movie for original score. But the score just felt very otherworldly. It transported me to 1940. Like it transported me to that time that they were in. It didn't feel like anything I would hear today in a movie that was set in the present day. And I really liked that about it. I also love the score. It's not my small detail, but one thing that, that I really liked was the score would change with the scene. So if we found out new information in the scene, now the score would also show that. But very subtly. Very subtly. Not in a way where I forgot what movie we watched, but we watched a movie in this bracket challenge where the score was absolutely ridiculous because when anything dramatic would happen, it would be like, da, da, da. like the score would just be way too dramatic and it would be too much of a shift. But what you're saying exactly is that the score was played throughout the movie and it never felt like anything was too intense or out of place. It felt like everything flowed with the themes, tones of what was going on in each scene. I love that little detail. Mine is about the ghost dialogue in this movie where it starts out and Heathcliff is in his home and he is running outside looking for Kathy's ghost because we don't know at first. And then we flash back through the life of Heathcliff and Kathy. And at the end, when Kathy is dead, Heathcliff says, I love you. I want you to be with me forever. Be a ghost and haunt me. I want you to haunt me until I die. And I like how it bookends both the beginning 
and the end of the movie at the very very end of the movie right before it cuts to credits it's the two ghosts walking together which is not in the book by the way so that was one scene that people did not love because it was not authentic to the book oh well the ghost thing is important (laughs) and another thing that i think especially with ghosts is a ghost is something haunting and i think the fact that the idea of ghosts looms over the entire movie is that these people are haunted by the fact that in life they couldn't be together that's great no i think you pulled out you pulled out a lot of like really good details for the strengths and the little details. Or so. maybe it's all horseshit and maybe the ghosts is. are just something that they added because <laughs> they like ghosts. Who knows? It could be either way. Who knows? Uh, what's your little detail for the golden compass? I don't have any. I couldn't even understand the movie. So n- none. I didn't have any either. So mine came from uh, trivia from this movie. And I my little detail makes a big difference in other things and not in this movie. And I think you'll understand what I mean when I say this. Okay. So my little detail is that George R.R. Martin, who wrote the Game of Thrones book, actually cited this movie as one of the reasons he wanted Game of Thrones to be a TV show and not a movie. That's hilarious. Right? And thank God for that. Could you imagine? And that's the problem. And I think that's how he came to that realization because he watched this movie and said, look at all these characters and these stories and all of these worlds and what a fucking mess this is cramming all of this into two hours. Let me make an eight season TV show about it and write a shit ton of books. And thank God for that, because that's a little detail about this movie that made a big difference for Game of Thrones as one of the biggest TV shows ever of all time. And also just super well done overall through 90% of the seasons. If we're talking like specifically, specifics but like good job to him thank god he saw the golden compass yeah i think it would still do okay as a movie not as good no but th- you don't, you think it would be a bad movie. i think it would be a terrible movie i think it would be awful i think it would be exactly what this movie is it's cramming too many characters too many stories too many worlds how would you explain all of these families all of these worlds all of these things how would you age this movie how would you age the dragons in a way where it all made sense in two hours. Well, I think if you did Game of Thrones, you'd have to cut some of it out, right? Sure. You'd have to cut out a ton of stuff. We would only get the drama between the Starks and the Lannisters. And that was enough for me. And the Targaryen family, probably they'd throw in there too. Probably. But other than that, they'd leave out everyone else, yeah. I would think. I would think so. I mean, they might introduce the Baratheons, but like... Just barely. But in the first movie, if they did Game of Thrones as a movie, the first movie would probably just be Lannisters and Starks. But you're talking one movie. You're talking one single movie. Yeah. We're not talking a trilogy. George R. R. Martin has one movie to cram all this shit into. He ain't doing it. I'm telling he's not doing it. Well, no, but it's not like the TV series does either, right? It does it by seasons. So it's just taking a season, making it a movie. Eight movies, same as Harry Potter, right? Oh, you're doing a big thing. Okay. Yeah, no, I guess. But I just couldn't get on board with that. And thinking even about this movie. I do think it's better as a TV show, by the way. I'm just saying I think it could work as a movie. I think it would be awful. I think it would be so heinously awful. And I hope to God they never make it into a movie. But thinking about even just this movie, The Golden Compass, like, look at what happened with that. They were like, this is an absolute train wreck horror show of a movie. And now they have a TV show who I haven't seen, but 
I've talked to people who have seen it and they really like it and say it's really good. So some things are just better suited for film and some things are just better suited for making it into a TV series. So you can get more of that story building, the world building, all of that. So that was my little detail that made a big difference. I know it doesn't have like really anything to do with the golden compass, but in terms of the golden compass as a reference for other pieces of pop culture, I think it made a huge difference for George R. R. Martin. Oh, actually I do have a little detail and he talked about it earlier. I think a bear hitting another bear's jaw off is fucking cool. <laughs> I think that's what happened. I'm pretty sure that's what happened. We watched that scene and we were like, did is, is that what we just saw or was it like a necklace? Was it something else? But I'm pretty sure it was his bottom jaw. I'm going to say it was the jaw and that's cool. So yeah, that's my little detail. It was badass. I liked it. One of the few badass parts of this movie. Okay. Well, if you are ready, let's move on to our winner because I don't think there's any mystery afoot as to what that is. So on the count of three, we will reveal our winner that moves on to the next round in our bracket challenge and we'll go up against Brokeback Mountain in the next round. So on the count of three, three, two, one. Weathering Heights. Weathering Heights moves on to the next round. Really great classic movie um, available for free on Amazon Prime. If you guys are Prime members, you can watch it there. The Golden Compass. I don't know, like formulate your own opinion on it, but we just thought it was a mess and I wouldn't personally recommend it. But if you read the book, if children's novels, fantasy floats your boat, maybe give it a watch. I don't know. I think you could do better with your time. Fast forward an hour and a half in and watch the bear hit the other bear's jaw. It'll be sweet. Yeah, that's all you need to know. So moving on, we are going to go to our four verse 13 seeds. And this is really exciting for us because we have our four verse 13 seeds and then we have our one verse 16 seeds and then we're done with the first round. So Sean and I have been talking a little bit about what we want to do with bringing all of these movies to the final four. And we have decided that after we finish our four verse 13 and our one verse 16 first rounds, we will continue releasing a podcast twice a week and we will go by section. So just like you do in basketball, we'll have like the Northeast quadrant. We'll have the Northwest quadrant and we're going to do kind of a live podcast. It won't obviously be live because we're going to be uploading it to anchor and to Apple podcasts and Google podcasts. But what we're going to do is we're just going to come with our thoughts and Sean and I are just going to battle it out, talk it out, go through it. We might see if some people want to come in on these podcasts with us. If not, we'll do it on our own. But Maybe we'll make some deals with each other. What do you mean? Like how we did the golden ticket thing. Oh, yeah. We'll see. We'll probably have to. At some we point. might have to or we just might have to like make concessions. One of us will. But yeah, so we're going to do that. And so we'll release two of those weeks. So then we'll have our final four. And for our final episode for this bracket challenge, we'll have our final four movies and we'll talk about those and reveal our winner. And then we'll also be able to live because I'll update the challenge bracket live as we're doing it live. Tell who the winner of our bracket challenge contest will be, which will be super exciting. And we have to start getting together all the things for the prize for that. So I like that idea. Yeah. That we're going to do a live and update live because it sounds like an election. And that's how the election results come in. All right. We're getting news from Florida and 
And it will be probably a week after yeah. the election, too. So we'll just keep with the, the politics theme. But yeah, so that's what we're going to do. We're really, really excited to get there. I, I just think we've watched a lot of fantastic movies and we already have some matchups that are shaping up to just be real head scratchers because we have watched a lot of really great things. So thank you for all of you who have recommended some of these movies to us, even the movies we didn't like. It's fun to talk about them and it's something different that we've watched that we would have never picked for ourselves to watch. And it gives us insight into what our friends like and what these people who recommend these to us like. And I think everyone has different opinions. And just because we don't like something doesn't mean that it's just bad. It's just personal preference. So we are very, very excited. have been having so much fun. So our next episode, we're going to drop on Monday, October 5th. So we will be going into the four verse 13 seeds. So our first matchup will be train spotting, which is our fourth seed versus mommy dearest, which is our 13th seed. So stay tuned for that. Go check out some of our other podcasts. If you haven't already go to challenge, check out where your bracket is. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the cinema matchups. Thank you guys so so much for listening and for the cinema matchups we are kim kohler and sean rodenberg and we will see you next time